Well, as promised this morning, you're going to get your talks on the three characteristics. And you're super fortunate because you're going to get three talks on dukkha. Um, I, I wonder, I suspect and wonder whether that is my doorway of the three because I love to talk about it. And um, before you uh, get depressed, um, it's dukkha and the ending of dukkha. They kind of go together. So we'll be talking about... Um, We'll basically be talking about the the first three noble truths, the cause of suffering, uh, or suffering, the cause of suffering, and the end of suffering. I want to start with, um, I think, a rather um, uh, light story, perhaps, from uh, the latest book by Grace Shirinson, who's a, a Zen teacher. And she's talking about her first meeting with Suzuki Roshi, one of the great pioneers of bringing um, Buddhism to the United States. To So she was talking about, um, this was back in like the 60s in, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and everybody was kind of looking for how they could get high, what would get them high. And word was out that, that Suzuki Roshi could help you get high, that he was, he, he knew he was a real deal and he knew how to, help with that. So she really went to see Suzuki Roshi to see how she could get high. And she said, um, instead of, uh, oh, I, she said, I was looking forward to meeting the, these meditating spirits and their mysterious power to get me high. Instead of meeting the invisible spirits, I received my first Zen meditation instructions. We spent what seemed like two hours meditating with him over the next 10 minutes. The discomfort in my undisciplined mind was running away with me. Would this work? Would I get high? What was taking so long? I was able to put aside my discomfort because I knew the goodies and my high were coming soon. When we finished our meditation, we turned towards Suzuki Roshi for our personal map to getting high. He knew he had our full attention. We hung on his every word. He began with words that promised us our place in the high zone, the ticket to getting high from Zen. The more you, um, the more you come to practice, the more you practice Zen, uh, the more you know, uh, the more you realize, the more you know that. Uh, and then he concluded, the more you know that life is suffering. We were too stunned to react. (laughs) Suffering, the more you practice Zen, the more you realize that life is suffering. We were so horrified, we didn't have time to consider what had happened. After Suzuki Roshi's pronouncement, all we could manage was getting out of the Zen center as fast as we could. I doubt we even said thank you and goodbye. My sister and I raced back to the East Bay. We were definitely not going to discuss what had happened. But my mind kept reviewing the events. How could he seem so light and be so heavy? Was he joking? Why would anybody practice Zen if realization of suffering was increased? Was he putting us on? Suzuki Roshi had set a hook in my mind, and I couldn't remove the discomfort. I couldn't figure my way around the dilemma his comment created because he beamed so happily while he said it. So paradoxically, realizing that there is suffering, I'm doubting he said actually life is suffering. That might be what she remembers, but that's kind of one of the misinterpretations. I'm sure he did point towards suffering, however. But paradoxically, what we see and what she's talking about in this story is that by facing the suffering in life and the challenges and the difficulty of life, rather than making us heavier, it makes us lighter. And um, then all this energy that we usually expand in trying to avoid suffering uh, can be used um, for enjoying life, for for, um, opening to life. The Buddha actually talked about suffering in all three uh, parts of the practice for lay people. Most of you know that the practice is divided into three parts, generosity, ethical conduct, and mind-heart development. Generosity and ethical conduct are all about um, social suffering and um, how we can alleviate suffering, 
not only for ourselves, but for our families and our communities and our societies, um, about sharing what we have and taking care of each other, about avoiding causing harm to each other. So there's extensive teachings in those first two um, parts in the path that really are about um, social suffering or suffering on a social level. Um, The third part of, of bhavana of mind and heart development, the Buddha talks a lot about um, suffering created in this heart-mind-body process. So more, it's more directed towards personal suffering and uh, what we can do about it. So it's really, it's directed towards developing the heart and developing the mind, meaning freeing the heart and mind. Um, so it's, it's definitely more um, personal. The Buddha is an extreme scientist of the mind, and I think his definition uh, or his understanding and the way that um, dukkha or suffering is expounded is is absolutely brilliant, in in my opinion. (laughs) Um, He basically talks about three different kinds of suffering, and each one gets um, subtler and you could say more existential and goes deeper into... uh, the challenges of having taken birth as a human in this universe. And then each one also points towards deeper levels of peace. In in the first noble truth from um, the sutras, kind of not exactly lining up to how I'm going to talk about suffering, but more or less covering those three, the Buddha said, birth is suffering, old age is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow, lamentation, and despair are suffering. Contact with what is unpleasant and separation from the pleasant are suffering. Not getting what one wishes is suffering. In brief, clinging to the five aggregates of the personality, body, feeling, perception, volitional formations, and consciousness as possessions of myself is suffering. So we start out with kind of the obvious um, suffering of unpleasantness, um, aging, sickness, sorrow, lamentation, unpleasant experiences of the body, of the mind. And then we move into um, uh, what the, the fact that even pleasant experiences can be um, experienced as suffering because they end, and you can't always get them when you want them. And um, then the last part is kind of the more subtle uh, suffering of, 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 of holding on to any of the, the processes here in this heart-body-mind. So you can see each one gets a little more away from conventional understanding and more um, deeper, really. So the first level, unpleasant experiences. The second level even pleasant experiences, and the third level, sometimes said even neutral experiences, the, the, the sense of being a, a contingent cre- creature, that we're compounded beings and that we really um, can't separate ourselves out from the environment and, um, and protect ourselves from kind of the constant impingement of, of sense impression. So you get to talk on each one of those. Before I continue, I just really do want to say that it's okay if you're not suffering at the moment. <laughs> um, sometimes when I give talks on dukkha, people come in like, oh, maybe I should be suffering a little bit more. Um, the way the path unfolds is that um, it's kind of, sometimes it unfolds kind of like alternating periods of peace and, and then periods of kind of turbulence. So the turbulent periods are when we're opening usually to deeper levels of suffering, either personal suffering, existential suffering, and 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 it's and we're trying to get a grip on what's happening. We're trying to figure out like how do I work with this, right? So it's turbulent, and then after a period of that, um, 
what often happens is is the mind quiets. It's that lightness that 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 happened with Suzuki Roshi. We get lighter and quieter and calmer. And that's usually then a period of practice that we enjoy more. <laughs> and um, there may be joy and um, and equanimity and uh, yeah, suffering's not really on the radar as much. And then eventually, not to burst in any bubbles, but um, eventually, what usually happens, I think, actually, if I think it's important that it happens, is that eventually, at some point. Um, you settle the, the the very calm and concentration and equanimity, kind of then eventually settles into deeper levels of suffering, and then it gets a little rocky for a while, and we're trying to figure out what's going on, and then what happens? <laughs> deeper level of peace. And I've been at this business now for thirty seven years, and um, it just keeps going. But the good news is it keeps getting deeper in peace. But it happens through opening to dukkha. Maybe there's some people that's not true for, but that's definitely my experience. So it's a long path. You're going to have some periods where it's not so much dukkha and it's joy and great. Those are important too, completely important because they kind of help us solidify what we know and solidify our confidence in um, in our capacity to be in this world, open-heartedly. You learn to trust the process, or we learn to trust the process. We learn to trust the the times of turbulence and the times of joy and Great path. Well, conventionally, talking about suffering is considered a downer. Um, the, somebody said the true religions of America are optimism and denial, which uh, seems to fit to me. Somebody else said America, a country where everything is done to prove life isn't tragic. I remember the first time that I read about um, the Buddha's teachings and read about dukkha. I was 23 years old and uh, living in Nicaragua, and uh, I read um, A Gradual Awakening by Stephen Levine. I just felt so happy that somebody was kind of putting it out there. I um, grew up in a home with a lot of denial, and so um, to to me it was like to talk about things as they are, combating the, the, the denial that, that we live in. For me, it was really freeing. So the first noble truth, the three kinds of suffering, the second noble truth, that, that, that the cause of suffering is some level of craving, clinging, contraction. There's all kinds of different words we can use. And even, as you know, aversion as a form of clinging. Um, And the third noble truth that there is freedom from suffering, pointing towards subtler and subtler levels of letting go of that craving, letting go of that attachment, clinging, contraction. So subtler and subtler levels of un- unbinding the heart and the mind. So tonight, dukkha dukkha, the first kind, dukkha dukkha. So this is suffering as it's conventionally um, known and understood. Having taken birth in these human bodies, uh, they ache, they age, they get sick, they die. Um, they don't. Uh, they hurt, <laughs> and um, and mental mental suffering, sorrow, lamentation, and despair, all the uh, kind of afflictive emotions that we experience as human beings. And so, most people wouldn't argue with this as a definition of suffering. It kind of jives with conventional 
understanding of suffering, that it's when something unpleasant is happening. So what do, what do we do with this, um, uh, you could say, our first existential challenge here of, of living um, with a body and mind that at times experience um, unpleasantness? In fact, fairly often. And that we can't avoid it. We can't tell our bodies not to hurt. We usually can't tell our minds not to feel what they're feeling. Unpleasant smells, unpleasant sights, unpleasant thoughts. Well, we all know what our our instinct is to do about it. Our instinct is to get rid of it. It's deep evolutionary conditioning, actually, this um, instinct when something unpleasant is happening to, to, to stop it, to get rid of it. And there is some survival wisdom to that. It's like... You know, suffering often in the body tells us that there's something that needs some attention. So, um, and in the mind might tell us that something needs our attention also. But as we know, the, the 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 problem you could say is that not only do we have these unpleasant experiences of body and mind, but we also have the tension of trying to get rid of them that kind of exacerbates and expounds, expands on the um, unpleasant experience itself. So the first one, for example, um, unpleasant uh, sensations in the body, that's um, suffering in the body, that's, that's not optional. It comes, you signed up for it when you, when you got born. Um, but the second one, the tension that we put on top of it, the aversion, the wanting to get rid of it, the uh, that um, is optional. And that's where the Buddha really pointed for us to, to look at, that we can um, change those habits, those deep habits, that deep conditioning, that we can decondition that deep conditioning. And, and free up the tendency to contract around what's unpleasant. Or you could say that we increase our tolerance for unpleasantness, for the ability to let it be, with a wide heart, a spacious heart, a compassionate heart and mind. That's how I often think about it, is making space. You could say making space for this experience of life in this heart and in this mind. So what do we do? What do we do when dukkha dukkha shows up? As I said, the tendency is to want to um, flee from it, to fix it, to make it go away. And we have many many ways that we do that. But the instructions with practice when when dukkha dukkha arises is to turn towards it. It's kind of counterintuitive. To turn towards it to see what's going on here. What suffering is optional. What, what other possibilities are there for relating to this experience rather than the tension and contraction and dukkha of trying to push it away. So it's, it's building, we're building a relationship with unpleasantness. I still think, um, I, was, I was raised in my early days of Buddhism. Um, I uh, practiced a lot in the Mahasi lineage from Burma. And um, I still think that the, that the instructions on what to do with um, body sensations, in this case unpleasant body sensations, are mental, um, unpleasant mental states, I still think that some of the best instructions around, so I'm going to review them. Let's use, for example, let's say a headache. We have a headache, right? So... Um, the first thing we do if, if our attention is drawn to the unpleasant sensations in our head would be to um, feel them, 
to feel those sensations. So what is going on? So we have this idea of a, of a headache. It's kind of a global idea, right? Um, what happens when we get closer to it? What do we see? Is it pulsing? Is it aching? Is it stabbing? Is it burning? Is it what, what are the sensations? And what happens when we see them? What are they? Do they increase, decrease, go away? Change to another sensation, move to another place? Usually the, the closer we get, the more change we're going to see. The idea, when we have a headache and we don't approach it, it just seems like this kind of solid thing. But when we get close, we, we see that it, it's shifting and increasing and decreasing in different sensations. So we, we get close, we notice that. That's our teaching in Anicca, right? One of the other characteristics of reality. And then there's this important question of what is the relationship to what is happening? So we notice the relationship to the unpleasant sensations in the mind, in the, in the head, I mean. Or is there that tension of go away, I don't like, I hate this? Is there equanimity, acceptance, the space to let it be as it is, to hold it, to... Is there enough, you could say, is the mind big enough to let that be as it is? And um, there isn't a right answer. (laughs) We think that, oh, I'm supposed to make myself be equanimous with this. No, we investigate what's really happening. So if we're hating it, what's it like to hate it? I find that a real interesting experience. We have a sensation we don't like. What's What's it like to hate it? And what happens when you notice that you're hating it, that, they're, that there's strong aversion. So the idea with this investigation is to start to put some flexibility and space in there because usual human conditioning, unpleasant, aversion, they're just like that. There's no space. And with this investigation going between the sensations, the relationship to them, noticing how they're changing, there can start to be um, other possibilities in the mind, heart. So we may notice that for a few seconds, oh, yeah, this is okay. Sometimes I ask the question, is this moment okay? When unpleasantness is happening, is this moment okay? Like as a, it's like a little bit of an inclination towards considering the possibility of equanimity. Sometimes for a few moments, it's okay, and then we go, no. (laughs) And so, as long as there's interest, we can keep investigating, or as long as the um, sensations last. If the sensations end or, or we just get super reactive, then it's time to take a break, move away, put our attention somewhere else, our anchor if that works, or stand up if you need to stand up, or shift. Or um, Sometimes we touch it, move away, touch it, move away, as a way to kind of increase the flexibility and the willingness to be with life as it is. You can take a Tylenol, that's okay. <laughs> we can do, obviously, we, then we respond. There are, we do have to take care of these bodies, right? We do have to respond appropriately. So it's not passive, it's not a passive like acceptance forever of a headache. We can take a Tylenol, but maybe the headache doesn't go away. Or what about um, emotions, unpleasant mind states? It's pretty much the same instructions. It's um, we turn towards them. What's going on in the naming it? Perhaps this is again Mahasi instructions. Uh, let's say let's say anger. So naming. Oh, this is anger. 
and then feeling it in the body. Corresponding sensations, maybe with anger, there's tightness here, or heat, or just the whole body feels kind of tense. And then how is it in the mind? Perhaps the mind feels tight with anger, inflexible, kind of dense. And then there's thoughts of revenge and self-righteousness. So how does it feel in the body? How does it feel in the mind? How does it change? Perhaps we're with anger. And while we're with it, we realize that actually hurt, hurt is what's going on, feeling hurt. Shift, change, morph, disappear. Sometimes it just goes away. Especially sometimes when the mindfulness is strong. There's an unpleasant mental state. You turn towards it and poof, it just goes away. So no right answer. Whatever is happening. And then again, what is the relationship? If it's an unpleasant mind state, is there that, no, go away, I hate this. Extra, optional, don't need to do that. We can explore. Is there some way that I can hold and allow this experience to live its life? It's learning with um, mind states that we can hold them like this. We don't have to <laughs> over-own them is the way I sometimes... We have to own them because we have to take care of them, but over-owning them is, um, is clinging. Feeling like we have to get rid of them is a form of over-owning them. One time in my practice, I, I studied in Burma a number of, a number of times, and... Um, one time when I was there, one teacher there gave a talk on ten kinds of equanimity, which I was found pretty impressive. And um, I'd heard that some, uh, I think it was Buddha Dasa in Thailand had given a talk on twenty kinds of silence. Wow. So I thought, what could I give a talk on, you know, that many of? And I thought, well, how about fear? <laughs> Worked a lot with fear in my practice, so I started making a list of all the different kinds of fear that I'd experienced with and worked in practice. And I started out with 13, and by the time I finished, I had 24 kinds of fear. Not to kind of make a list of all, this is me, and, and I'm a fearful person, but it was, it was more for me just the kind of interest of like, oh, so this is what happens in this heart and mind. This is what it means to connect intimately with life, or part of what it means. It's not the whole story, of course not. But, but part of connecting to human life is recognizing and becoming intimate with unpleasant or turbulent mind states. Basically, so they lose their power, not to get rid of them, but so that they lose their power. When we don't recognize them and we can't turn towards them, they're very powerful, either kind of sneakily under the surface or in, in ways we act out, ways that we believe them. When we can't turn towards them and, and get intimate and know them, we believe them when they come up. We, we believe all those fearful stories, for example. But when we can get close and develop a relationship, then now I don't get nearly as fearful as I used to. Occasionally, sometimes things will be frightening, right? But mostly I can say, oh, that's fear. And, and, and there's not this automatic believing it and all the dukkha that comes on top of it. And I have to say it's because I got intimate with it. I got to know it, so it didn't frighten me anymore. So part of this process, you could say, of turning towards turbulent um, emotions, dukkha as presented by, as turbulent emotions, is so that we're not afraid of ourselves anymore. Whatever we can't turn towards in some way controls us. And if we want deep, peace and rest, 
we have to learn not to be afraid of who we are. That's what we're exploring. Hmm. I mentioned my 24 kinds of, oh, I also made a list with anger. And uh, you can probably tell which of the three Buddhist types I am. Um, So I made a list of anger. And again, I started with 13 and I got 24 kinds of anger. And um, I mentioned that this at a retreat and a man afterwards came up to me and he said, my list is up to 47. I was so impressed. (laughs) Uh, I don't know you guys well enough to share the list, but someday maybe. And sometimes it takes, you know, a long time and we have to just be so tender and caring about what our limits are. There was a certain kind of fear I worked with in my early practice. I called it the dark hole, and it was kind of this fear where I felt like I was it was pretty disembodied, probably dissociated. It was kind of this sense of being in the outer space and nobody was going to find me. I was going to be all alone and, you know, kind of like that song. Where you, the, they lose contact with the space capsule. Was Captain, what is, I don't remember what it was, but kind of like that song. You guys might know what I mean. Um, and at first, like, uh, I was terrified of that place. And my first job was to know how to get out of there. So the ones, a lot of us have, like, the one that gets us, right? And it's like, how do you get out of there? That's so important. And then once we know that we can get out of afflictive mind states that are overwhelming us, then we have more curiosity, so then I started to get really curious about this place. What is this? You know. So I started to actually be able to, when that mind state would come up, to actually investigate and be like, wow, this, this is pretty, not a lot of body sensation, pretty disembodied. These are the kinds of thoughts that are here. It feels very kind of vast, but not in a good way, um, dark. Um, so I got to, so that I could actually hang out there. And then over time, it was like it had less and less power. And then finally one day, I remember it was kind of coming towards me. (laughs) I could see it coming. And I was like, hi, my old friend. And it was like the fear went, huh? (laughs) This isn't quite right. (laughs) And it didn't come in. It didn't land on me. It had lost its power through that process of intimacy. That took about 10 years to get to that point. It's not like I didn't have freedom during those 10 years, but yeah, sometimes we just have deep respect for for how long it can take. I remember one time I was working with a pain, a physical pain. It was probably a deep energetic pain also in um, Burma. And uh, this was after years and years and years of practice. And I couldn't even, I could barely touch it. It was so intense. And so at first all I did was, I called it bounced off of it. (laughs) It's like I would touch it and it would be like boing. (laughs) Like that was like as, as much as my mind could go anywhere near it was like, Boing! <laughs> and then over time, it was like, and it took a long time, a long, long time, but over time, I could start to let it be and let it be. And then it actually unbound. It's like some of these physical, um, unpleasant physical sensations, they unbind by the caring attention that doesn't react. It gives them like space, you could say, to unbind. So we're trying to increase our tolerance for pain, really. Many years ago, I, I, I heard a commercial on um, TV, and uh, it was this woman, she had a headache, and, um, and she was like, 
how much tolerance do I have for pain? Zero tolerance. Just say no to pain. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's usually how we react. And I felt sorry for her. It's like, if you have zero tolerance for pain, good luck getting through a human life with, with peace of mind, peace of heart. It was probably like an ad for Tylenol. Definitely take your Tylenol. So it's like making space, too. That's another way you can think of it. It's like making space in the heart and the mind. And there's aversion, rejection. There's no space. It's, It's dense in there. Can we make space? And then it calls for us to just be really honest with what's happening, not to have like some ideal what should be happening and try to make that ideal happen. The transformation comes from the connecting with what is actually happening with awareness, with mindfulness. Mindfulness is our great ally in this search. It's what, it's what brings in the element of flexibility and the ability for things to change. One woman was one in one of my um, community talk, talks. One woman was asked some questions. She said, "Like I, you know, I have this pain, and I'm I'm trying to accept it. And can you help me with that?" And I'm like, "You don't accept it, do you? You hate it, right?" She's like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Hate it then." Like, hate it with mindfulness. (laughs) Like, be with what's really happening and see how it, see what happens. So it calls for emotional honesty. And there's a kind of um, surrender component, you could say, to this. Because usually what happens is we hate it, 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 we push it away, we don't like it, we don't want it, don't want it, don't want it, don't want it. (sighs) Equanimity as a last resort. (laughs) Allowing as a last resort. But then over over years, um, we get better at shortening that resistance time. And then sometimes when the mind is very balanced and mindfulness is strong, there isn't resistance, right? We can settle right in. Some of you might have heard me um, read. This is one of my favorite uh, quotes. Some of you may have heard me read it. But this is from Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness. In India, I was living in a little hut about six feet by seven feet. It had a canvas flap instead of a door. I was sitting on my bed meditating, and a cat wandered in and plopped down on my lap. I took the cat and tossed it out the door. Ten seconds later, it was back on my lap. We got into a sort of dance, this cat and I. I tossed it out because I was trying to meditate to get enlightened. But the cat kept returning. I was getting more and more irritated, more and more annoyed with the persistence of the cat. Finally, after about a half hour of this coming in and tossing out, I had to surrender. There was nothing else to do. There was no way to block the door. I sat there. The cat came back in and it got on my lap. But I did not do anything. I just let go. Thirty seconds later, the cat got up and walked out. That's meditation for you right there, (laughs) summed up in that story. (laughs) Another Suzuki Roshi story. This is from um, David Chadwick's book. Not remembering the title at the moment. On the fourth day of Seishin, our meditation practice, on the fourth day of Seishin, we sat with our painful legs, aching backs, hopes and doubts about whether it was worth it. Suzuki Roshi began his talk by saying slowly, the problems you are now experiencing 
will go away, we were sure he was going to say. We'll continue for the rest of your life, he concluded. The way he said it, we all laughed. (laughs) He's trying to get him to surrender. So resistance is a natural part of this um, working with dukkha dukkha. And we start to kind of recognize what, what our form of resistance is. Like how do we try to avoid this truth of these hearts, bodies, and minds and the fact that at times it's just going to be unpleasant Sometimes we bargain with it. We're like, okay, I'll be with this pain so that it'll go away. (laughs) That's a form of um, resistance. One yogi called it secret striving. And when I, sometimes I use voice recognition software when I write a talk. And when I wrote that or said that into the voice recognition software, um, it translated it as secrets driving which I thought was pretty good too. Secret striving or secrets driving our practice. The secret wish that, oh, if I'm with this, it will go away. Usually that means there's aversion present. So if we notice that, oh, okay, this is aversion, this is resistance. Or sometimes we tell ourselves stories like, this shouldn't be happening. Sometimes we have this weird idea that like, if we were a better yogi, we wouldn't suffer at all. Or sometimes we tell ourselves, I can't bear it. Or I'm doing something wrong. As if pain isn't part of the contract with life. So over time, what happens is, you could say this is related to the third um, characteristic of not-self. What happens over time is that um, we hold the pain, the unpleasantness, with less and less um, reactivity. So we hold it more and more lightly. And as we do that, um, we understand more and more deeply that it's not personal. Back to this morning, right? Life is not permanent, perfect, or personal. And um, we just understand that, that the pain arises from causes and conditions, that it's nature, you could say. Our job, if it's present, is to relate to it in the most skillful way, the most free way we can, and that it'll change. Nietzsche. So we understand more and more deeply that freedom doesn't come from getting rid of certain experiences, but rather it comes from allowing. Allowing that that releases that the contraction or the clinging. So another word for this is non-identification. We, we identify less with the experience. While we still are there and present for it, <laughs> it's the relationship is, is, gets freer and freer. Well, another form of resistance is trying to figure out why something is happening. <laughs> 
I mean, there is something to be said for causes and conditions and knowing what they are. But often it's like, oh, I feel angry. Why do I feel angry? So that might be a way of actually avoiding feeling the anger and seeing the process of anger unfold. Another important part of this exploration of dukkha dukkha is compassion. So sometimes we actively call in the quality of compassion as a way to help us hold what is happening. I find that compassion, it's like it softens the sharp edges of the pain and makes it more possible to be present for it. Also, we see, as we are able to open to dukkha within this being, we see that we have a greater capacity to be with dukkha when others are suffering and that we don't need to reject their suffering because we've learned how not to reject it within ourselves. And that that natural quality of compassion, of caring, um, has uh, space then to, to manifest in the world. So one of the beautiful gifts of this growing capacity to be with dukkha dukkha is that um, we can offer compassion to our loved ones, offer compassion in our society, respond to suffering with compassion rather than with avoidance and aversion. And And there's a greater capacity than to let ourselves be touched by the pain of the world, the suffering of the world, oppression in the world touched enough that we care enough to respond and to alleviate suffering in our communities, in our families, in our societies, to be an engaged citizen in the world. So what we see with our exploration of dukkha dukkha is that when we have the capacity to open our hearts to all of life, which includes painful body sensations, painful um, mind states, that we suffer less and less, paradoxically. And that when we don't refuse reality and how it manifests right here and now, when we don't refuse the truth of the way things are, we're released from the self-created prison of dukkha. We free ourselves of the stress that comes from running from the truth, the stress that comes from fear that we can't meet this life as it is. So we develop a certain kind of courage and fearlessness and confidence and faith in ourselves and the teachings and equanimity more balance. So all kinds of beautiful qualities come out of this encounter with dukkha dukkha. We learn not to be afraid of who we are. And paradoxically, when the heart can be open in that way too, um, the truth of the way things are, including dukkha dukkha, we find that the heart's more open to joy and beauty also, that it's a package deal. We can't decide that we're just going to avoid dukkha and only have joy. That's not how the heart works. If the heart has learns to barricade itself from what's unpleasant, that barricade's going to be there when, when beauty and joy would otherwise be present. So opening the heart to dukkha also opens the heart to joy. So process, this whole process is one is a, of, of unbinding the heart and the mind. Melting um, a, 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 Zen, a Tibetan teacher named Anand Thubten, um talks about melting the ice mountains in our hearts. 
That's what we're actually doing. That the, the aversion and the rejection is, is like ice mountains in the heart. We're learning to melt those ice mountains and then this heart can respond, can be touched by life and respond to life, can respond with compassion, can be touched by joy. So we're releasing little by little the chains that bind the heart or we're melting little by little the the ice mountains in our hearts. So I think I will end... with a quote from Charlotte Joko Beck, a Zen teacher. What is created, what grows, is the amount of life I can hold without it upsetting or dominating me. At first, the space is quite restricted. Then it's a bit bigger, and then it's bigger still. It need never cease to grow. And the enlightened state is that enormous and compassionate space. But as long as we live, we find there's a limit to our container size, and it is at this point that we must practice. And how do we know where the cutoff point is? We are at that point when we feel any degree of upset or anger. It's no mystery at all. And the strength of our practice is how big that container can get. The enlightened state is that enormous and compassionate space. Let's sit for a minute. We'll end with the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.